have nothing against these grand ambitions, but I think we are limiting ourselves when it comes to the potential of systems thinking and system change work if we only look at these huge changes. And in fact, even the big changes, I think, can only be achieved by, by tackling smaller systemic issues in the right sequence in, in a clever way. This week, we're joined with Odin Mullenbein, who is a partner at Ashoka Germany and also a lead of the systems unit at Ashoka Globalizer. He's also the co-author of a recent report from Small to Systemic, which looks at the multi-billion euro potential and social innovation. So um, Odin, super happy to, uh, to have you on Into Deep. Wondered if you could start just giving a little bit of your background, both kind of what brought you to the, the social sector and kind of social entrepreneurship work. Um, and also, if you can share just a little bit about Ashoka for those who aren't familiar, that'd be great. Sure. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's uh, great being here. Mm, I come to the social entrepreneurship world from management consulting. I've been with McKinsey for a while and then did some pro bono work for Ashoka and thought that's very exciting and switched sides. Um, before that, I was a philosopher by training um, and also started a couple of social ventures myself. Um, I... The most important thing about Ashoka is that it's a global network um, of social entrepreneurs. So we operate in about 90 countries and support about 3,700 um, social entrepreneurs that we call Ashoka Fellows. Uh, and for this context, um, the most important selection criterion to mention is that um, when we look at a fellow candidate, we, we discuss at length the potential uh, for that candidate's new idea to change the social system. Uh, and so we, we have been part of the, the systems thinking and, and systems change movement uh, for almost 40 years now. Wonderful. And I know, too, you, um, you had mentioned some of your work at Ashoka Globalizer. Um, so can you say a little bit more about that program and, and your involvement in that? Sure. Um, Ashoka Globalizer started as an accelerator program that looked into opportunities for social enterprises to grow beyond borders uh, in the regional sense. So we were looking at international um, growth. Then we shifted gears somewhat and looked uh, into ways for social innovations to spread without necessarily social ventures having to grow. We thought this is a more feasible and elegant solution uh, to, to scale impact than the growth mindset that we find in uh, for-profit businesses. And then the last iteration was to focus much more, not so much on, on spreading individual pieces um, like social innovations, but, um, but to look at, at the systems that the fellows ultimately want to change in a, in a bit more detail and in a bit more like, holistic way. And so what we are doing right now is... Um, over the course of 14 weeks, we develop what we call a systems change strategy. Wonderful. And can you go into a little bit more depth on the systems change strategy? I think a lot of, a lot of our listeners are trying to do exactly that type of work. So maybe say a little bit more, both about um, kind of what people, what skills people are coming into that program with and what mindsets and kind of what's the training that you go through with those entrepreneurs and, and how do some of those mindsets and skills change as a result of that program? Sure. We have structured the thought process that people go through in the Globalizer program in five steps. 
Um, first, we look at the problem that the fellow is ultimately interested about. So this might be uh, forests are being destroyed or people live in poverty, uh, the, the more tangible outcomes of systemic problems. Um, then we move on to analyzing the systemic root causes of these problems. Um, that gives us usually a list of like five to ten um, of what we believe are the most relevant systemic drivers of that problem. Um, Based on that analysis, we select one or two systems and uh, like specific elements in those systems that um, we believe if we can tackle those would have the biggest impact on, on the problem that we care about. Um, so, and we try to be really, really specific here. So um, intended system changes, system change goals of past fellows include things like um, in the rural water management system in Mexico, there's a feedback loop between um, local bureaucrats and local communities to make sure that the projects actually, uh, you know, include what, what the people actually need. Or in the healthcare system in Egypt, people go to general practitioners before they go to specialist doctors, as that would increase overall efficiency, and so on and so forth. Like, really, like not just improve the education system, but like what exactly in the education system in which country do you want to change and how? Um, once we have that, that is step three. Uh, we move on to the fourth step, which is what we call a system change journey or a system change story. Um, so here we take the system change goal of step three, uh, take it as the happy ending of a system change story, and then develop the story from back to the beginning. Um, so if you think about a story like, um, like Lord of the Rings, um, the happy ending there is that the evil ring is brought to Mordor and destroyed in a big volcano. Uh, and then thinking backwards, you might have uh, you might have story arcs like um, the hobbits make it to Mordor uh, undamaged, or um, the armies of the good defeat the armies of the bad. Like the, the big arcs of the story, and then you can zoom into those arcs and define um, the more tangible milestones and chapters, like. Um, the, the hobbits make it through the dwarven mine or the, the riders of Rohan join the forces for good. Like the, more, the, the smaller uh, milestones that contribute to the bigger story arcs. And, and we do a similar thing uh, for the system change goals that our fellows have identified. And so after step four, we have like a one-page summary of what we believe needs to happen in order to achieve that, system, that systemic goal in the most elegant, efficient, risk-free uh, way possible. And only when we have that do we move on to the last step, the fifth step, which is um, to think about the, the concrete contributions that the social entrepreneurs can make to drive that story forward. Uh, so what can they, can they sell a product or a service that, that helps the story move forward? Can they do advocacy? Can they start a movement? Can they do ecosystem initiatives? Can they train others? Can they open source knowledge? Like all the different tools that are available to a social entrepreneur, we go through them and see how, how they can drive the story forward. Um, and the whole process takes about 14 weeks. That's great. And how much do you do explicit mapping in that um, and actually have those entrepreneurs do things like systems maps or how much of that is our uh, competencies that are kind of held by, your, by the Globalizer team or you? Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, we do not ask our participants to be experts in systems thinking, system mapping, any of that. Um, we trust our, con our colleagues from uh, the venture teams um, to select 
social entrepreneurs into the Ashoka Fellowship who are already thinking on a systems level in some way. They, they might not have like technical systems mapping skills, but, but they are definitely thinking on that level. And so what Ashoka Globalizer um, colleagues provide is, is, the more, is the more technical skill to, to, um, to structure these thoughts, to, to put them on a systems map, to distinguish between relevant and irrelevant factors, to identify some of the most relevant feedback loops, things like that. But we, we understand ourselves more as um, we ask a lot of questions and we are a thought partner to the social entrepreneur. And, um, and we trust the insights that the social entrepreneur and their team already bring to the table. We just help to, to put it on paper in a nice way and, and to facilitate the process. Great. And before we get into the report, I wanted to ask a question, too, about another publication that you had done in SSIR, which was the article on systems change, big or small. And in it, you talk about the, the misconception that systems change, by definition, needs to be big. And so would, would love if you can share a little bit more about kind of the, the gist behind that article um, and, uh, and some of the stumbling blocks you see people run into based on that misconception. Mm-hmm. The motivation behind that article was... Um, so we were talking about about system change to a lot of the social entrepreneurs that we support. And whenever, especially in Germany, when we used the, the term system change, um, everybody got afraid. Like it, it seemed like there was a lot of resistance, even though we selected those people for their potential to achieve system change. So that was a bit <laughs> weird for us to realize. But it, it's about, so I think the, the first, it, it's different things that come together, but, but some of the, the issues were that, People associated system change with, I don't know, getting rid of capitalism or um, completely overhauling the education system on a continental scale or, you know, things of that nature. And, and that seemed so big. And, and the people who have done something vaguely similar to that level of ambition were so few and, and few in between that, that nobody wanted to, to actually say out loud that that's the kind of work that they want to do. Um, or that that's the level of ambition. It seemed ludicrous in a way. And I, I was a bit perplexed because that is, that is actually not what we select people for. Um, so if somebody has, uh, has invented a social innovation um, that can improve the efficiency of the Egyptian healthcare system uh, in some neat little way, that's perfectly fine for us. Like we don't, we don't ask for a complete, for a complete revolution um, of any sort. And so um, so that was one part of the experiences that we had in the discussions with our own fellows. And the other was when we looked at the publications that were coming out at that time, um, most notably uh, a great report um, by the Schwab Foundation in collaboration with the Berta Center in South Africa. Um, they, they showcased a number of case studies where, um, where organizations in many cases grew to, to quite an extent um, and had systemic impact um, or quite, quite a bit of reach and like big, impressive numbers. And, um, and they were talking about revolutionizing whole field, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so because those were the only publications with concrete case studies that reinforced this point that system change needs to be big. And I, and I, I just thought, I have nothing against these grand ambitions, but I think we are limiting ourselves um, when it comes to the potential of systems thinking and system change work, if we only look at these these huge changes, um, and in fact, uh, even the big changes, I think, can only be achieved by by tackling smaller systemic issues in the right sequence in in a clever way. 
And so not only do we forget about 95% of the good that we can do with a systems approach, we even limit our chances of success for the remaining 5%, which represent the big grand changes, because when we do our strategies, we, we fail to look at all the smaller systemic changes that ultimately result in the bigger ones. And so this, this is what I wanted to highlight and also give some concrete examples how, how more, more targeted, smaller, more humble systemic interventions um, can look like. Um, in addition to, to the analytical piece, there is also, I think this is also important from a mindset perspective. Um, this, I, I have some issues with this idea that you can, that you can revolutionize a field or, or a healthcare system or an education system. Um, this, is, this is not, I think, how you, can, you should most constructively approach systems work. Um, it, it relies much more on, on doing small steps, sensing, um, adapting your approach, learning, getting more people involved. Um, and so this, this whole idea of, of some small number of entities or even one social enterprise um, being responsible or driving a big change. It's kind, of, it's kind of misleading at the very least or even counterproductive. That's a great reminder. So let's switch gears to the report. So it's, the title is From Small to Systemic. would love to, to have you share a little bit more about kind of why it felt important to write the, the report and would love for you to give a little bit more background on kind of how you chose the title as well. Yeah, for the title, I uh, I can't really say that much. We had uh, we had marketing people look over that, and I I'm really not good at that. But the motivation was um, so we we were trying to build the field that supports system changing social entrepreneurs, and we are of course, and the fellows are of course, uh, motivated by the good that you can do with this approach for the world. And so we were talking about you know. Uh, yeah, improving ways of teaching or um, adding new job opportunities for people with disabilities and all that good stuff. But when you talk to donors and when you talk to politicians and when you talk to, um, to the partners that you need to achieve these types of changes, like healthcare insurance providers or um, school bureaucracies, you know, these types of entities, that's not necessarily their language or what they are motivated by. And so we said, okay, we, we, need to, we need to make sure that these, that these uh, entities um, understand the value of these social innovations and of a systems approach. And so we looked at the economic potential that these changes have for society at large. Um, and so we, um, we joined forces with McKinsey, who are very good at, um, at building these, these models and doing calculations uh, like that. And we looked at four cases, two in the education and two in the healthcare sector, to see what's actually in it for Germany as a whole, for the state, um, for, for, for society. Uh, and how much would we have to invest to unlock that economic potential? Um, and our hope was that uh, I mean, we were sure that the numbers were kind of would be kind of attractive, um, but but we didn't know how attractive they would be. So, to, to give just two examples, um, Discovering Hands is a social business that um, trains blind women in uh, diagnosing breast cancer uh, much earlier than other doctors can. 
Uh, and this is because of two things. Uh, first, they have a, an improved sense of touch. Uh, and, and second, they have more time for the diagnosis. And so um, the difference is so big that if you use this way of diagnosing um, breast cancer for all women in Germany, and I'm not quite sure about the numbers, but it, between the ages of 35 and 55 or something like that, then you would, you would save 80 to 160 million euros each year in Germany alone. And that is including all the costs for training and the diagnosis themselves. So this is like a net benefit. Um, and I mean, and this is, a, this is still a minor change, right? This is just, quote unquote, um, a, new, a, new, a new job that is established in the healthcare system, a new practice of doing breast cancer diagnosis with blind women. It's a relatively small change, but, but even then it's a three-digit million kind of uh, savings every year. And so, uh, and we get, we get similar, even more impressive numbers uh, for other innovations. Um, and and this, this proved to be quite powerful in conversations. So um, this made the whole idea of social innovation um, relevant enough to be featured in, in major publications in Germany. And also there's a, there's a debate in the national parliament right now to better support social entrepreneurs. And um, in, we just had the first debate on the topic on the parliament floor and, and the report was cited as a motivation to better support these innovators. And we also know of, um, of other parties who will also um, refer to, to the report and their proposals. So this is, a, this is a great success for us. At the same time, we are a bit worried that um, that it might also have a negative impact on the debate overall because we, I mean, we, we did the study in the hopes of making social innovation more attractive for certain stakeholders like politicians or donors. Um, but we don't want to imply in any way, shape or form that we are only after social innovations and system changes because of the money that it saves. This is, this is just a nice side effect of many systems improving innovations but it's not why we are doing it, and this shouldn't become the narrative. But the narrative should still be um, social progress helping this uh, disadvantaged and disenfranchised um, parts of the population. And you, in our conversations before, you had mentioned a few interesting things about Germany, both in terms of different cultural aspects and the entrepreneurial environment, and also to just literally how the, the social se sector is structured and kind of some of the challenges that, um, that nonprofits um, have in, in actually accessing funds. Can you share a little bit more about that so listeners have, a, have an understanding of that context? And yeah, I have to be um, quite brief here because I, I think the history and, and context of Germany is, is quite different from, from other countries. But the most important elements I think are um, that, so first of all, Germany has a, a well-developed um, social safety net uh, that includes Whenever you you might lose your job, you get um, you get money to to find the next one. You will always have enough to eat. Let's put it let's put it that way. Um, higher education is free. That kind of stuff. And um, so so that's one part. And the other part is that um, there are five umbrella organizations um, that together represent the majority of the welfare organizations. And this is this is how the state, um, but also a couple of a bunch of private money. Is, is making sure that there's a basic set of social services available all over Germany. And so um, many of the issues that might be 
that might be tackled by social entrepreneurs um, in other countries are already taken care of either by the public safety net or by very well-developed, extremely professional, highly resourced um, private entities, the big welfare organizations. And so, um, and so I think the role of social entrepreneurship is a, is a little bit different in Germany. So um, in other countries, it might um, in, in many more cases make sense to, to aim for big organizations so that you can reach many people, um, that kind of thing. In Germany, Usually the goal, I think, should be to, for example, develop an innovation, show that it works, do the next time, do a few iterations uh, in collaboration with government programs or in collaboration with welfare programs and make sure that they adopt the innovation or that they improve the policy framework around it. And because these, both the public um, programs and the welfare structures are just so much better suited at replicating good ideas at scale. And that changes the dynamic between the state and social innovators in that country. That's fascinating. Yeah, well, and so in your context too, in the, in the report, use the term systems partners. And so my, my guess is there's also something interesting about your point in bringing other partners in early and <clears throat> developing those relationships to really make sure the, that those innovations can be taken to scale. Any, anything else you learned that were interesting ways that um, social entrepreneurs in Germany were learning to navigate that field that might be helpful for other people to think about in really getting to more systemic impact for, for their given um, uh, businesses and innovations? Uh, this is probably not unique uh, to, to the German ecosystem, um, but, but I think everything, ultimately you need a collaborative approach um, whenever you want to have an impact on a systems level pretty much. Um, and so, and, and it doesn't really matter if you need, if you, like, for, for example, for, the, for the, the improved practice of breast cancer diagnosis, you need, um, you need to train doctors in, in how this method works and that they, so that they can trust it. So it should be part of, um, of doctor trainings at universities. That's one change. Um, you need to include the trainings for the blind women in the public training systems so that you get all the subsidies and the support and, and the official accreditations for it. And third, it needs to be part of um, the regulations for the healthcare insurers to cover the diagnosis. And so, and so you need to collaborate with these different stakeholders, right? You need to reach out to healthcare insurers. You need to talk to, to um, whoever does the curriculum for doctors at universities. And these are, this is absolutely crucial. And if you're not, um, if you're not in a good position to work with these entities, then you will have a very hard time achieving impact on the systems level. You, you might have, so what you might be able to do is, is, I don't know, like train 20 of those blind women in, in being really good um, breast cancer diagnosis instruments. But, but then, uh, and you might even find jobs for them because you collaborate with maybe uh, with one doctor or a private, you offer it privately to patients and they just pay for it themselves. But it will never have a, it will never be institutionalized that way. And so the ability to to work together with these, with these systems players, the healthcare insurance, right, the universities, et cetera, that's absolutely crucial. Um, and here we actually found some deficits. So, um, this, in order to be able to do that, you need a certain, like, 
you need people who specialize on that. You need people who speak the language of the other players that you want to convince of something. Um, you also need to be patient because, um, I mean, these these are these are big structures, and and that has its its upsides and its downsides. And the upside is once you have convinced them, that's your system change. But the downside is that it takes a while for them to to understand it, to align, to make internal decision making processes go through, and so you. You need to be a good partner for them um, and you need to be interested in working with them in the first place. And so, um, and, and that all requires that you have the right strategy and the right skill set. And if you, if you don't invest in these things, then you will not even be invited to, to, give, to, to give the pitch, right? to deliver the pitch or to, um, to help them in their internal um, decision-making processes. And so um, that, that was definitely one learning of the study that, Social entrepreneurs should invest more in in the strategies and in the capabilities to work with these uh, systems players. Um, the other is vis-a-vis funders. So um, we are like the field of social entrepreneurs. Everybody likes to complain about donors and that they don't give enough money for systemic initiatives and that it's too focused on just growing programs and having a higher, like a bigger number of beneficiaries that you reach. But actually, and, and while some of that might be true, there's also things that we can do ourselves to make it easier for the donors um, to support systemic initiatives. And, and one of the most striking feedback in my eyes was that um, what we heard several times is that uh, social entrepreneurs with a systemic ambition, um, A, tend to be quite unclear of what exactly they want to achieve and in what in which way, and they seem to be way overconfident and, and overpromise what they can actually achieve in a given time frame. And that happened too many times in the last couple of years. And so um, even the donors who are um, who, who like a systems approach are somewhat like have a, have a more reserved stance right now be, because they just burnt their fingers a bit too much. And so what I my, my recommendation to social entrepreneurs right now is to, to state explicitly, including all the assumptions that might be wrong, what your intended system change is. And not, I want to improve the healthcare system, but I want to introduce a better practice of breast cancer diagnosis, like on that level of specificity. Then you should be able to say exactly how you see the system change journey towards that goal. So this is how we are going to work with universities. This is how we are going to work um, with the training institutions. And this is how we are going to work with healthcare insurance providers. And these are the partners that we are going to involve, et cetera, et cetera. And then be, be humble and, and somewhat reserved when it comes to the timeframes in which you intend to achieve all those milestones. Um, if, you, if you are clear and open about all, all of your assumptions and your strategy, and if it's not... Um, completely over the moon in terms of uh, ambition and time time span, then then you have built trust, and then it's also okay to have some failures to adjust your your approach and to learn as you go. Are you finding, having done the economic analysis for this report, are you finding that that is becoming a recommendation for social entrepreneurs to try to estimate some of that, or is is the finding, hey, it was it was so much that to do that well, you're going to be bringing in someone like a McKinsey um, to do it robustly. And if you don't do it robustly, don't even try to estimate it. Where, where are you falling right now on recommendations to these social entrepreneurs relating to that? 
we, we were not really advocating for particular social innovations or their, their institutionalization. Um, we were more like trying to make the point that there's a lot of economic potential in this general approach and in this field of social innovation. Um, we, I wouldn't vouch for any of the numbers that we ended up with for the four case studies that we looked at. So like in another case, we arrived at the sum of 900 million euros per year. And, but I mean, it could just as well be 450. I, I don't know. The point is, as long as we are not wrong uh, by several orders of magnitude, what we have identified is a good reason to better support social innovators. Um, and that's all we wanted to do with the study. If you're a social entrepreneur, you are in a slightly different position. So in, your, in that case, you would have to advocate for, for a particular innovation and, and a particular system change. And so, the and again, you might you would be in a, in a similar situation as we are, though that you might be wrong with your one calculation. And but in that case, it would be it would be quite bad because it's not just the general point that you are making. You are you are trying to make the potential of of one one specific thing explicit. And so, I think you should be very careful. Like, yeah, um, by all means, do the modeling. I think it can be a good argument to to get additional supporters on board, um, but be as humble as possible and as open as possible. So one principle for this whole exercise, for example, would be whenever you have a range um, in which a certain number could be and you're not sure, take the lowest possible number um, and then make it explicit. So whenever you plug in a number in your model, it, there should either be a link to a source or ideally, people should be able to download the model and change the numbers so that they can get different results based on their own assumptions. So, like, don't I, I would I wouldn't recommend um, doing this kind of modeling exercise, arriving at any number, and then just providing the number in in your pitches and in your press releases without anybody being able to play with it, to question it, to challenge certain assumptions that are behind it. Um, this can backfire quite quickly. Um, but, but as long as you're careful and as long as you're transparent, um, I think it can be a great exercise to make your case in a stronger way. One of the other questions I have too is when thinking about, I think there's, there's been a lot of energy and enthusiasm behind social entrepreneurship and this distinction between thinking about kind of that as a growing field versus what it is to be kind of systemic in, in that pursuit. And so can you talk a little bit either about kind of how Ashoka starts trying to sense out whether people really are on more of that systemic path or how you've uh, explained this difference to people in relation to this report to really capture, okay, what, is it, what does it mean? Great, lots of people interested in doing social entrepreneurship, but how do you really feel out whether someone is kind of has those systemic ambitions or is at least, and, and is at least, and is on the path towards being, uh, more systemic in the impact that they're after? Mm, if only we had a good answer to that already, uh, that would make things much easier. Um, I, I think we are still struggling with that to some extent, to be honest. But So here are some things that I, I can say right now. Um, so first of all, um, I think it's important to note that there is no clear-cut distinction between the social business and the system-changing entrepreneur. It's not like this zero-one kind of dichotomy. Um, it's more of a, it's a matter of degree, how much, how much influence and impact your work has on a systems level. And, and so it's not so much about 
finding the ones and discarding the zeros. It's more like um, taking people where they are on their journey. And and at least when, when it's about whether or not we select them into the Ashoka Fellowship, um, all we need is to see potential for the new idea to at some point change the social system. And so, and sometimes it's only in the selection process when we talk to the fellow and, and their team and their partners that they realize this thing. So this is one of the ways in which Ashoka has impact by, by talking to social entrepreneurs at various stages on, on this journey um, about their potential and about their potential systemic impact. Now, um, at some point, I mean, we, and then we use some, some heuristics and we, we try to apply some systems thinking tools to see where the potential could be. So, for example, um, as many of your, your listeners will know, like, we, like tools like the 12 leverage points exercise that, that Donella Meadows um, produced or the, the 5R framework um, developed by USAID or like all, all the different systems tools or, or system dynamics mapping. It doesn't really matter. We try to, to apply these, these concepts and frameworks to see how the work and the new idea of the, of the social entrepreneur could fit in. And, and when, if we see, okay, this could really change a power dynamic, this could make a big contribution towards um, a different mental model about people with disabilities, this could introduce a really important new flow of information that would then allow certain actors to behave differently. Uh, this would make, this would introduce a new practice in the field of education. Whenever we feel confident that we can say one of those things in systems terms, then usually we have a good candidate for, for why we might select them or what their system change goal could be for a strategy exercise. Um, but, but also these things change over time, right? So um, we put the fellow profiles online at the point when we select them into the fellowship. And oftentimes, um, when we, we have them as participants of the Ashoka Globalizer program, let's say seven years after they were selected, um, you wouldn't recognize the profile. Like it's because the work has evolved to such an extent that they might be at a, at a completely different uh, point in their journey. And then, then the system change might, might have changed or they might even work in a slightly different field. That's great. It's such a it's such an important reminder of it not just being a binary and thinking about it as a developmental path and thinking about the power of relationships and network to to push people on the trajectory towards systemic impact is it's it's such a powerful reminder. Um, so, Odin, one last question for you. I, you've spent a ton of time um, with social entrepreneurs from kind of various walks of life. W- wonder if you can talk a little bit just about some of the like the the common challenges and stumbling blocks you see people run into generally um, and any guidance um, and wisdom you, you, you tend to offer those folks. So, so people listening can benefit from that. I mean, some things do come up more often than others. Um, but before I give any list that might be misleading, let me say that you, you can be successful in changing social systems in a lot of different ways. There is no, um, we, we even at some point started to, to develop certain archetypes. Like, you know, we, we talk about um, the architect approach to, to systems change or the community mobilizer approach. And these things are very, very different and they need completely different skill sets. And, um, and like everything from, from funding to impact measurement will be very different. And so I, I struggle to give a, a concise general list of, of things. At the same time, and with this disclaimer in place, um, 
there are there are three skills that we believe are important for pretty much everybody um and and um this is a bit more more abstract than concrete challenges um but we believe that if you cultivate these skills and values then that would be a great basis for tackling whatever more tactical challenge might might be in your way um and the three skill sets or, or values are first um, systems thinking um, which which nobody should be afraid of it's it's a natural thing to do um, it doesn't necessarily require technical expertise if you if you don't have that it's easy to uh, to bring it online or to, to get it from an external partner um, but but you you should look at at the issues from a systems perspective there is uh, it's usually quite hard to um, to tackle the root causes of social problems if you are hacking away at the symptoms all the time. So that that definitely helps and it, it can be practiced in a very systematic way and it's it's just a skill. You know, it's, it's like golfing or web development. You, you just invest a couple of hours and then you become better at it. The, the second one is what we call right ambition. So um, there is... At some point, you want to change the root causes of a social problem. Uh, it, it can't be enough anymore to just plant the new trees, which will then be cut off again, or to help um, 10 homeless people who you know will be replaced by others because the systems haven't changed. At some point, the motivation needs to, needs to be redirected on the systems level, and it, it should be redirected for the right reasons also. So um, if... If the goal is to be like is to just be a hero entrepreneur, but now on the systems level instead of a growth based uh, you know VC kind of um, approach, then then not much is won. Like it it should be you should want to change the system because it's because it's the best type of service that you can bring to a certain community or to a certain system, and and then you're in a good a good place. Um, and the final quality is what we call openness. And this is the ability to give up control. Um, because as we said, if you, at some point you will need to work with others, you will need to collaborate. Um, and that requires sharing the spotlight, sharing decisions, uh, decision-making power, um, sharing resources in many cases, being patient, um, yeah, ha- handing over things to, to other players. So in this, you need to be comfortable with these types of decisions um, because otherwise you, you might stay in control of everything you do, but you are limiting your potential to have impact on a systems level just too much. So yeah, this, um, I, I haven't talked about any specific issues like funding, et cetera, but I think if you, if you cultivate the qualities of, of systems thinking, right ambition and openness, then you will be well-equipped um, to tackle the technical challenges. I think that's a, a great note to end on. Odin, anything else uh, before uh, before we uh, part? Um, just maybe enjoy the whole process, right? So as I said, it's not a, a zero, it's not a binary thing. Um, it doesn't really matter where you are in your journey as a as a change maker or a social entrepreneur. Um, you, if you just reflect on a regular basis, how you can how you can go deeper with your impact, how you can nudge systems in a certain way, how you can have more indirect impact. If you just keep at it, then it will just come over time. So don't, I don't think there is a point in, in trying to strive to be a systems entrepreneur immediately, whatever that might mean. It's more, I think a more healthy approach is to, 
to see this as a lifelong development objective and, and to, to walk one step after the other and, and just see what happens.